All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for that last song, and um, it reminds me of what we were going through in Sunday school, uh, remembering the days of Hezekiah, when a vast Assyrian army was bearing down on him, and he had no hope with his army of offering any resistance to Assyria, Lord, and what he did, he took uh, the letter of the words that Assyria was threatening him with, and he went into your temple, and he laid the letter out before you, and he begged you, he besought you that you would hear him, that you would see, that you would answer. Um, Lord, that's what casting our cares on you looks like. We confess the difficulty of our position and our, un, our inability to do anything about it, Lord, um, we confess to you the danger that we feel, Lord, we lament it before you, and then we throw ourselves at your mercy and say, Lord, only you can handle this. Lord, may you take care of this. May you sustain me through this. And Lord, we all come into this door with trials weighing us down, um, but Lord, help us to be humble enough to take these cares and to cast them upon you, to lay them before you and to just rest in you and to trust that you will carry us through it, Lord. Help us to do that so that we can give our full attention to your word now um, as we come to 1 Corinthians. I pray that by your spirit you would instruct us out of your word and that you would change us. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians 4 this morning, so you can turn there. And as you're turning there, I just wanted you to think for a bit about your own personality and your character. How did you become the person that you are today? Who has had the biggest influence on your development as a person, whether it's for the better or for the worst? Uh, and for most of us, the answer would be our family, our parents, our brothers, and our sisters. They are the ones that we were in constant contact with as we were growing up. They are the ones who knew us best, still know us best, and who oftentimes were there when no one else was there for us. They are the ones who, without our knowing it, shaped our personality, even the way we look comes from them. They taught us right from wrong. They taught us certain values. They taught us how to perform certain responsibilities. And this transfer of information, of values and personality, came to us by virtue of the fact, the simple fact, that our family happened to be the ones we were around the most all the time, day in, day out, during high times and low times. We naturally came to imitate them, whether that imitation had a good impact on us or not. It was inevitable because we were around them so much. And we acknowledge the truth of this when we say familiar phrases like father, like son, or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It just happens. But when you become a brand new creature in Christ turning from your sins and placing your trust in Jesus alone to rule you and to save you, the Holy Spirit makes you a part of a new family, a spiritual family. And like our physical family, God intends 
for our spiritual family to have the same kind of transformative impact upon our lives as our physical family did. And like with our physical family, that transformation comes through the simple act of being present with one another. I want you to keep a finger in 1 Corinthians, but to turn back to Acts 18. Acts 18, because there we see the birth of the Corinthian church, how God saved individuals through the instrumentality of Paul. He saved individuals in Corinth, and he made them part of a new spiritual family. And their spiritual father was Paul. And they lived with Paul for a year and a half, and they saw how he lived. And I want to read to you how Paul lived among them. And I'll only read to verse uh, 13, but starting in verse 1 of Acts 18. After these things, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And I'll stop there. It's enough to give you a taste of how Paul conducted himself among his spiritual family, the Corinthians. And coming back to 1 Corinthians 4, we're looking at verses 14 through 21. And in this passage this morning, we'll see two ways in which our spiritual family shapes us to be more like Christ and less like our old selves. The way that Paul, being family to the Corinthians, was shaping them by the power of the Holy Spirit to be more like Christ and less like their old selves. That's what we're going to see in this passage this morning. And I already read it for us, so I won't read it again. We'll just start walking through these verses. So the first way that we see in which our spiritual family shapes us to be more like Christ and less like our old unbelieving selves, we will see it in verses 14 through 17. And it's this, our growth in Christ-likeness 
comes through imitation. Our growing in the midst of our spiritual family, our growing in Christ's likeness, comes through imitation. So look at verse 14. Paul says, I do not write these things. Now what is he talking about? These things. Well, he's referring at the very least to verses 6 through 13, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And remember, in those verses, Paul used a great deal of irony to rebuke the Corinthians for their pride. When I was reading through that section, I tried to sound sarcastic in certain portions when Paul is saying, oh, you're so great. You've become kings without us. He is, he's using irony to rebuke them for their pride. The Corinthians think they are great in the kingdom. But in verses 6 through 13, Paul, in effect, says, you have not humbly served and suffered enough to be great in the kingdom. Those who are great in the kingdom are those whose shoulders have been rubbed raw by the crosses they have carried as they pursue Jesus Christ like the apostles were doing. Paul says, you're so great, but us apostles, here we are suffering. You Corinthians haven't suffered enough to be great in the kingdom. The Corinthians' understanding of greatness had been completely warped by worldly wisdom. And what Paul wrote in verses 6 through 13 is a wake-up call to them. It's a paradigm shift, an overturning and an overthrow of their perverted understanding. He's seeking for them to throw away their old understanding of things, to throw away worldly wisdom and to start thinking like Christ. Paul, using all that irony, it seems a little harsh. But Paul, in verse 14, says, I do not write these things to shame you. To shame you. Now, how can it not shame them? If you were to read verses 6 through 13, if you were boasting in your greatness and your power, thinking you're something, and then Paul comes to you and says, oh, you're so great, you're so wonderful, but here am I, an apostle, and I'm still carrying my cross. How can that not shame you? Yes, that, that should embarrass us, that we ever boast to think we're something. And then we get a Voice of the Martyrs magazine in the mail, and we say, wow, what a fool I was to boast about how great I am. They are the great ones in the kingdom. They are the ones who are suffering for Christ's sake. So how can it not shame them? So what does Paul mean? I do not write these things to shame you. Well, it's not his ultimate purpose to shame them, to demean them, to degrade them, to cut them down and to leave them groveling in the dust. No, his ultimate purpose is to admonish them. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul is not interested in winning a debate with them. Yes, he knows that what he said has shamed them, but he's not wanting to leave them there. He's not looking to dunk on the Corinthians. He's not looking to put them down because they are his beloved children. He's speaking to them like a father to his children. He wants what is best for them. 
That's what admonishment does. It's instructing someone so that they will change their current course of action and start heading in the right direction. That's what Paul is doing when he was using all of that sarcastic language. And that's the heart of any faithful parent, to want what is best for your children. And that is God's heart toward us as his children. And Paul has that same heart for the Corinthians. Think about your own kids when you see them involved in behavior that is self-destructive or is destructive toward others. You want them to see the error of their ways. You want them to feel some shame so that from within their own hearts they will want to stop behaving in that way. You want them to have some sense of shame over what they've done so that they would desire to change but you never want them to feel like they are not still your kids. You never want them to feel that you don't love them. I thought of my own kids. There's many times when my son Isaac will try to act out the scene of Cain and Abel with his brother Asher. I'm surprised Asher still has all his fingers with how Isaac treats him sometimes. And when he does that, I need to discipline him. And Isaac will cry, but then invariably he'll come up to me and he'll throw up his arms for me to pick him up because he wants to know that I still love him, that I'm still his dada. That's what faithful discipline in God's church looks like. There are times when we all fall into sin and we need to be admonished, and sometimes we need to be sternly admonished, instructed to turn away from our, sin, our shameful behavior. And that admonishment brings conviction, and it brings shame. It brings that, that godly sorrow that I have done what is evil in God's sight. But that admonishment in the church, whoever is bringing that admonishment, must also bring with that admonishment an arm around the shoulder, gentle words of love, and expressions of desire for your good in Christ. And that is what Paul is doing. He has sternly rebuked them for their pride, but he says, listen, you are my children. I love you. That's why I'm saying these hard things to you. That is how God disciplines us. He says, you're doing wrong. I hate what I see from you. Turn. And we repent and he says, listen, I forgive you. You were never under condemnation because you're in my son. I want you to be like my son. And that's how church leaders ought to exercise discipline in the church. That is how parents should exercise discipline in the home because discipline that leaves a child just groveling in the dust without loving the child at the same time only alienates that child and hardens their heart. And Paul is interested in a changed heart in the Corinthians, not a hardened, broken, despairing heart. Paul goes on in verse 15 to say this, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Now, why is he telling them this? Well, those of you who are parents, you've likely had moments when you're talking to your, your young child, and it's very clear they don't hear a word 
you're saved. <laughs> and so you bend down and you take their cheeks in your hands and you direct their head to you so that you're locking eyes and you know that now they, they understand and they are listening to what you are saying. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's saying, yeah, you have all those voices, but I'm your father. Listen to me. He's not putting down other teachers in the church. He's certainly not putting down Apollos and Peter. But what he's doing is asking them to pay special attention to what he is saying. Because remember what is happening. They are boasting in different teachers. They're saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. They're a pretty distracted people. If you look back in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, he exhorts them, let no man deceive himself. And then when we got to chapter 4, and we looked at verses 3 and 5, these believers seem to be standing in judgment over Paul. They're not humbly listening They're standing in judgment over Paul and other teachers. And so they are not really in a humble listening mood right now. So Paul takes their face in his hands to get their attention. And he gets their attention by reminding them of his relationship to them. He is their spiritual father. Not in the sense that he's the one who created new spiritual life in them. Only God can do that. But Paul was the instrument that God used to bring these believers to faith. We read it in Acts 18. Paul, nobody else, Paul planted that church. When he came and he preached Christ crucified, he preached the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead to save sinners, and they put their faith in that Lord. Paul, he birthed them. He became their father through the gospel. He begot them, or he begat them in the language of the King James. In the midst of all the voices that are speaking into their lives, Paul wants to make sure they hear his voice as they hear the voice of of a father. Now, why does he want them to pay special attention to him? Is it because he thinks he's a better teacher than Apollos or Cephas or anybody else? Is it because he's jealous or threatened by the fact that the Corinthians might consider others to be a better teacher than him? Is it just an ego trip? No, we saw in chapters 1 and 2 that Paul couldn't care less about where he ranks on the scale of being a fine orator. He doesn't care about that. What he's trying to get through to them is this, that they need to pay special attention to him because as their spiritual father, no one loves them like he loves them. No one is as invested in them as he is. No one is more concerned about their well-being in Christ than he is. No one is as well acquainted with their needs as he is. I haven't experienced this yet as a parent because my boys are so young, 
but I have to imagine that one of the most heartbreaking things that a mom or a dad can experience is to have your children stop listening to your, advo your advice and start listening more to the words and the advice of other people. And you may not be as wise or as smart as those other voices, but you know that you love your child more than those other voices do. You're the one who loves them most. You're the one who's in the best position to know what they need. You're the one who's most invested in their success, not those other voices. And because of your love for them and your investment in them, you know yours is the voice to which they should give the most weight. You know that for their own good, they should seek out your advice, your counsel the most. And so you feel the need at times to remind them, hey, who birthed you? Who fed you and clothed you and bled for you, cried for you, prayed for you, feared for you, sweat for you all these years? Should my words count for nothing? And so Paul, he's coming to them as a father and saying, listen, I love you. Listen to me. Humble yourselves. So he's getting their attention in verse 15. And hopefully having gotten their attention, what does Paul say in verse 16? Considering how he is invested in them as a father is invested in his children, what does he say? Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. What is Paul's concern here? Why does he want them to imitate him? Is it because he wants more people saying, I'm of Paul, and less people saying, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas? No. How do I know that? Well, what did we just read about Paul's behavior? What is he asking them to imitate about himself? Look back at uh, verse 10. Listen to what Paul says. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Now, if you read those verses, who is Paul imitating? Christ. So when Paul tells the Corinthians, imitate me, ultimately, who is he telling them to imitate? Christ. So he's, Paul's not concerned about himself. He wants them to imitate Christ, and he is the clearest example, the most present example in their lives of that. In chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says it a little more clearly when he says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Remember in Acts 18.11, Paul settled in Corinth for how long? A year and six months. So they saw the way he lived. They saw how he was a tent maker, toiling with his own hands. They saw how he labored to bring the gospel to the lost in the synagogues and in the marketplaces. They saw how he was arrested and falsely accused by the Jews. 
They saw how he reacted to that persecution. They saw all of that. And Paul is saying, you guys are so um, obsessed with yourselves. You're quarreling. Imitate me. Remember how I was when I was with you. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul, by his own life, showed them what it looks like to follow Jesus. He was a living example to them. And so he says, imitate me. And when we come to verse 17, we see how Paul is going to help them imitate him. Look at verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 4. Paul says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. He's sending Timothy to them. It's interesting that Paul is not content to simply tell them in a letter how to behave. He doesn't want to leave it at that. He is sending them a living example. Since he himself is not able to come, he is sending Timothy to them. He's sending his right-hand man. Now, why is he sending Timothy? Why is Timothy the one that he trusts to send? Well, it's because Timothy is a faithful imitator of Paul. Therefore, a faithful imitator of Christ. How do we get that from the text? Well, how does Paul describe Timothy as his beloved child? So, Paul brought Timothy to faith in Christ. And he describes him also as what? As faithful. Timothy is faithful. Timothy will be able to remind the Corinthians of Paul's ways which are in Christ. What are Paul's ways? Well, it's what he taught. It's how he lived. So Timothy, when he arrives, he will be able to remind them of what Paul taught and how Paul lived. And being a faithful imitator of Paul, that reminder is not only going to come by way of verbal exhortation. They are going to be able to see the way Timothy lives. So it's not just that Timothy gets up behind a pulpit and say, guys, remember what Paul said. Paul could have done that through a letter. But they're also going to see how Timothy lives, how Timothy imitates his spiritual father, Paul, and is imitating Christ. And by watching the way Timothy lives, those Corinthians will be convicted about their pride. They will humble themselves. They will see what it looks like to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 because it's interesting how Paul has that in mind when he instructs his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy was Paul's point man. When a church was struggling, he would send Timothy. And listen to Paul's instructions to Timothy in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Look at verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Paul knows people will imitate their teachers. And when Timothy is sent to teach, people are going to imitate him. 
And so Paul says, listen, you have to live the right way. You have to follow after Christ, not just in the way you teach, but in how you live. Then look at verse 16. He says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Then turn to Titus, another son of, in the faith of Paul. Titus chapter 2. Titus was another point man. He sent Titus to Crete to set things in order in the church. Titus chapter 2, um, verse 7. In all things, speaking to Titus, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech which is beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. So Timothy is being sent to Corinth to be an example that the Corinthians can imitate in, in lieu of Paul being there. And it's not as though Paul is singling the church of Corinth out. Because back in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, Paul says, Just as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul is not being manipulative. He's not showing partiality in Corinth. He's telling them to live the same way he's telling all the churches to live. Humbly follow in the footsteps of Christ, carrying your own cross, not quarreling with one another. So Paul is wanting them to imitate him, to pick up their crosses, to walk humbly. But there's an implication in what we're reading about here that I don't want you to miss. What we, this interaction we see between Paul as a spiritual father and his children in the faith, the Corinthians, it shows us why it's so important to be part of a local church body. It shows us why it is so important that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but that we encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. Listening to a preacher on the radio or on TV is not a replacement for church, not even close. Reading your Bible at home is good and necessary, but it can never be an adequate replacement for gathering together with other believers. You cannot say, just me and my Bible, that's all I need. No, you also need the body of Christ. We need to bring ourselves into contact with living, breathing, walking examples of what it looks like to carry your cross, to follow hard on the heels of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knew that, which is why he sent Timothy to the Corinthians. We need living illustrations that we can see and hear and touch that we can imitate. And not just imitating them without a discerning eye, but imitating them as they imitate Christ. Again, going back to my children, they're a perfect illustration of the importance of this. My oldest son, Isaac, he's learned how to walk, how to eat. He's learning how to start talking, and he's learned that by watching his mom and his dad. And his younger brother, Asher, is doing the same thing. But it's interesting how Asher is picking everything up 
faster than Isaac in every arena, it seems. And why is he picking, up, picking it up faster? I'm convinced he's picking it up faster because he sees how Isaac is doing these things. Isaac, who is so close to him in age, not only does he see his mom and his dad, he sees his big brother, Isaac. And you could just see in how Asher looks at his big brother that Isaac is his hero. Isaac is his superhero. He wants to do everything Isaac does. He stares at him wide-eyed. Isaac is the living example. Every day they are together. Every day. And Asher grows as he watches his brother. If you will, please allow me to admonish you as a brother who loves you. Coming to church once a month is not enough. You simply will not be able to imitate Jesus Christ if you are not constantly rubbing shoulders with living brothers and sisters who are also imitating Jesus and are giving you a living example to follow. And of course, the teaching and the events that you get here is not going to be as good as what you can find on the radio or on TV. But we are the ones who pray for you. We are the ones who know your name. We are the ones who will bleed with you, who will cry with you and laugh with you and will be there for you. And yes, we, your brothers and sisters, we're not perfect. We will fail you. At times we will sin against you. We will get on your nerves. But who loves you like we love you? Who is as invested in your well-being in Christ as we are? We need each other. The rest of us cannot imitate Jesus as well without you. We need you as well being an example to us. And you cannot imitate Jesus as well without us. Our growth in Christ-likeness comes in the family of Christ through imitation. Imitation. And that brings us to the second point, which we'll go through quickly. And we see this in verses 18 through 21. Growth in Christ-likeness comes through discipline. In the church family, in the family of Christ, growth in Christ-likeness comes through discipline. Listen to verses 18 to 20. Paul says, Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. There are some individuals within this Corinthian congregation who are fanning the flames of pride and division. They are big talkers. Big talkers. Apparently in Texas, they have a saying for individuals like this. They say, they are all hat and no cattle. They dress like a cowboy, but they've never roped a cow. They've never rode a bull in their life. They're all hat and no cattle. And these Corinthian boasters are like that. They act like they're big shots in God's kingdom, and they seem to be bold in talking about this because they don't think Paul is going to come around and set them straight. But Paul says, Newsflash, I am coming soon, if the Lord wills. 
And when I come, I will find out if these boasters really do have a reason for boasting. Now, how will he find that out? How will Paul find that out? Well, remember, where was the power in Paul's ministry? Look back at chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Was the power in Paul's ministry in his fancy talk, or was it in his weakness? Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul's ministry was not just talk. There was power, power to save souls and sanctify sinners. And that power came in the midst of Paul's weakness, his humility, his service, his suffering. In Texas, if you put on a cowboy hat, a grizzled rancher might walk up to you. And to find out if you're all talk or not, he might look at your hands, see if there's calluses on those hands. And then seeing no calluses after knocking that big hat off your head, say, you've never worked a day in your life. Well, Paul, when he comes, humble Paul, eager to serve, bearing scars all over his body, grizzled Paul will walk up to these individuals and he will pull their robes off their shoulder and take a look at their shoulders to inspect if there's calluses on their shoulders. And he will say, you've never carried a cross a day in your life. You're all talk. So stop boasting in yourself. In God's kingdom, God's power is found in Christ-like humility, not in the empty boasting of worldly wisdom. And Paul says, the choice is yours, Corinthians. Verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? As a faithful spiritual father, Paul will discipline them if they keep on boasting. And he's speaking this way with them, not to shame them, but so that they can make progress in Christ-like humility. He does not want them to be conformed to this world. He wants them to be conformed to Christ. And as a faithful spiritual father, Paul does not delight in using the rod against his children. He would rather they grow by imitating him as he imitates Christ. But the Corinthians are so distracted by the world and the world's values that if they do not repent for their own good, Paul will use the rod of discipline in order to redirect their attention to the Lord Jesus. And we all have times when we need the rod, not just when we're little kids, but as adults, we get distracted by the world and we live the way the world does, and it's then that we need a brother or a sister to come along 
and through the, the, the rod of, it, of admonishment say, hey, brother, you are not following Christ right now. You need to turn and follow him. You see all the richness that we gain when we come together and we dwell in the presence of one another as the body of Christ. We are provided with living examples to imitate. And we are also provided with protection that comes through the rod of discipline. If I, I am so comforted that if I stray off into sin, I know I have you as my church family who can come and admonish me, lovingly rebuke me, and help me to get my eyes off of myself, off of the world, and back onto the Lord Jesus. It's for our good, our protection. The more time we spend with the world, the more we will think and act like the world. The more time we spend with Christ in fellowshipping with his body, the church, the more we will begin to think and act like Christ. And how little we value life in the church is an indication that our thinking has already been far too influenced by the world, a world which places such high value on individualism. So the exhortation here this morning is don't cut yourself off from the benefits of being with your spiritual family. Humbly imitate Christ-like examples and subject yourself to loving discipline, and you will grow in Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, by your Holy Spirit, baptizing us into the body of Christ. That, Lord, we have forsaken all that we can have in this world. It may have even involved leaving father and mother, brothers and sisters, but, Lord, you have given us in Christ many spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Lord, you have more than compensated for what we have had to leave behind. And, Lord, help us to greatly value the body of Christ, that we would long to be with one another, that we would make it a priority because you command us to do that, Lord. Help us not to settle for not gathering together. There, we have brothers and sisters around the world who risk their lives to gather because they consider it worth that. May we consider it worth that. And Lord, if there's any here who don't know Christ, they are not a part of the family of Christ they are dead in their sins and they're headed for hell. Lord, may you have mercy on their souls. May you open their eyes to the beauties of Jesus and to the ugliness of their sin. And may you grant them to turn from their sin and to put their trust in Jesus, Jesus who lived a righteous life in the place of sinners, who died paying the penalty of death in the place of sinners and rose from the dead to bring sinners to heaven with himself. Lord, may you... Bring them into your family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.